very important task for IOs, such as the UN, or maybe in particular the UN, could be to really open itself up as a facilitator for different kinds of collaborations and uh, dialogue. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast here, Library and Archives, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today, I have a special guest, Professor Mia Halme-Tomisari, who has wrote about the juncture between anthropology and the study of international organizations. This is a point that we never touched upon in our podcast, so I'm very excited as we go into this conversation with you, Professor. You are Associate Professor in Human Rights Studies at Lund University in Sweden and a research associate at the Global Governance Center. So I want to welcome you here on behalf of the UN Library and Archives at Geneva and also on behalf of our audience, whom I hope is going to be interested about what we're going to talk about today. You have written actually a part of your studies on uh, analyzing and studying the sessions of the UN uh, Human Rights Committee that meets here in Geneva. It's part of the setup of the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights here, right here in Geneva. So this is particularly interesting for us here in Geneva, but also for our audience. And in this episode, we want to discover more about your findings. But before we go into today's subject and the deep dive on your findings about this, please introduce yourself to our audience and perhaps tell us how you became so interested in the United Nations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, indeed join this discussion on diverse approaches to multilateralism. Uh, my formal title was already introduced. So indeed, I am Associate Professor in Human Rights Studies at Lund University. But to introduce myself in more sort of scholarly terms, I am indeed a social anthropologist and I'm also fully trained in international law and more particularly in the what's called the critical tradition within international law. And um, it is with that approach that I have uh, taken my research to study what I call very broadly the contemporary human rights phenomenon. So I've done archival research in the 1940s, studying diverse initiatives and impulses that led to lobbying for the document that eventually became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And from there, I've gotten a keen interest in the monitoring framework that emerged around the Universal Declaration. And what is the delicious angle here for me is that, of course, the UDHR was initially planned to be a binding unified legal document, and many activists at the time lobbied for the creation of an international human rights court that would operate under the UN. And neither of these two goals were realized, so what interests me is the real-life version that we received of this, we can call it a utopian vision of a world order that would be organized around human rights and international law. Well, that sounds very exciting to me. I hope it's the same for the audience. And um, actually, what we want to explore a little bit with you, together with you, Professor, is what contribution can anthropology make to the study of international organizations? And apparently, in the articles that you uh, you written and I read with, uh, with a lot of interest, that contribution is quite a lot, apparently. Um, and um, you wrote in 2022 about that. You also wrote another article that is included in the book, Palaces of Hope, uh, published uh, back in seven that is also available here in our library. So I would like to have, first of all, an overview, an overview of what are 
alternative approaches to international organizations. Not everyone may know what we mean by alternative approaches to international organizations. So what I know is that in October 2021, here in Geneva, the Graduate Institute hosted a very interesting conference on alternative approaches to IOs. And you were part of that. You were one of the one of the speakers there. And um, what I grasped at that event is that what little theory may exist coming from the legal, uh, say, quarters of studies of international organization has been developed by practitioners responding to practical challenges because IOs respond to practical challenges. And so these alternative approaches, what they are and what do they bring? Yes, that's a very important question, which is indeed at the very core of my research approach as well. And uh, I'm inclined, of course, to answer by saying, well, they bring everything. Because for me, the so-called non-alternative approach doesn't really permit me to gain the kind of insights or knowledge that I'm after. And to really to explain it in a simplistic way, I'm, of course, simplifying here because there are many, many brilliant international lawyers who do do this kind of more comprehensive analytical work. But if I were to simplify things, I might say that an international lawyer, when studying international organizations, would start from what I, as an anthropologist, would call legal fiction. And what that means in turn is that they would start from, let's say, the description that exists at the UN Charter, for example, which doesn't necessarily go into the details of organizational consumers, but some of the founding documents, which would then detail what kind of offices would exist, what kind of expert bodies would exist, what kind of monitoring practices, for example, what kind of documents would be produced. And of course, all of these would be, if we think of the UN Treaty Body Framework, they would be a accompanied by state ratifications of the particular covenants that uh, treaty bodies such as the Human Rights Committee monitor. And these ratification documents would then create certain kinds of legal obligations, which would mean that states are required to realize the obligations enlisted in the covenants. However, all this tells very little or nothing at all of what actually happens. And this is where things get interesting, and this is what I call the kinds of insights one needs in order to really understand what happens. And to really, to explain it in a very simple way. As I mentioned, these kinds of non-alternative approaches start from what I say I call legal fiction. And what an anthropologist would do would be to complement that with two distinct angles. And one of them would be the contributions of individuals. We, of course, know that individuals within international organizations can be very influential. They may come with their own set of visions. If we think of the field of human rights, human rights practitioners almost by definition are very devoted to human rights. So they would have their own distinct aspirations. Of course, within the UN, you always also have a competition with state interests and other kinds of interests. But nevertheless, the realm of influence of individuals. However, in the organizational reality of the UN, no individual stays put for a very long time because people rotate in their positions. So, so to invest too much attention on individual contributions would be, again, to get a distorted sense of what really happens. And therefore, there's the third element, which we could call a community of practice or a certain praxis which exists within an I.O. And that means the kind of implicit knowledge, the way in which certain things have become to be done in the course of the I.O.'s existence, the kind of 
tacit knowledge that is written nowhere and which many insiders know you need in order to really get things done. So all the non-written rules, the subtle negotiations and the points in which something needs to be put in writing and the points in which it needs to be kept outside of writing. So this tripod vision, if we call it, is really what an alternative approach would bring. And I hope I hope I can be this arrogant that by now the listener might agree with me that indeed we actually do need this kind of a holistic vision to understand really what goes on in IOS. And I'm looking forward to uh, detailing a little bit more what that approach help us understand. And we will have, we will do that in the second part, the deep dive on that contribution on topology to the study of international organization. Just before we go there, I wanted to ask you, I'm curious, and perhaps our audiences as well, what is the source of this interest by anthropologists in international organizations? Because, the, you know, the collective picture of anthropologists is actually, you know, a little bit different. I, as, as someone who's been doing multilateralism for 30 years, I wouldn't have expected that kind of curiosity. So what is the source of that curiosity? I think it's a fair question. Indeed, anthropology has a reputation of being a discipline where anthropologists who are often concretely physically bearded because the, the discipline also has been male-dominated, although that has changed tremendously. They travel to concretely distant locations that are inaccessible, and then they produce this kind of knowledge that only they have access to. Indeed, this is the dominant sort of legacy of the discipline. Yet from the very early on, legal anthropology has been a very important part of anthropology as a subdiscipline. And it, of course, had very grim reasons as well as sometimes anthropologists would be employed by colonial powers to offer knowledge of local norms, which then ideally would help to govern the native colonial peoples were called at the time. That, of course, has changed. That dire legacy, which to a certain extent many different disciplines tackle with, but anthropology certainly has tackled with, those kinds of interests evidently have nothing to do with what it is that we do. However, the interest on norms, the interest of dispute set, uh, resolution mechanisms, these are at the very core of human societies and human interaction. And then it's actually not that big a leap to think that you move into the contexts, which often can be organizations, where many of these norms are both created and then they are monitored. And for me, I've been wondering which came first, my interest in anthropology or in human rights. And in certain ways, they came at the same time, because for me, I view both of them as aspiring towards some understanding of uh, human nature and certain human universals. So anthropology offers a very distinct viewpoint, which I call an inductive viewpoint, where you start with empirical data and how I have come to understand this relationship from the viewpoint of human rights. It's a more deductive viewpoint, starting from a certain theory, a certain ideology, which is then sort of not imposed, but it's then it's something that you can take around the world, of course, with local articulations. But nevertheless, there's always this productive tension with these different viewpoints. And from that, it's quite logical in a way, I, I hope the, the listener can again see, that my interest would go toward the UN, because it is the grandest articulation in known history to embody something of uh, universal collaboration, to embrace universal values through human rights. And it is also a very, very different terrain for collaboration because of its explicit adherence to sovereign equality, which never existed in the world of empires that preceded the UN. Absolutely. Now, I would like to go to the second part of, of this discussion into a little bit of a deep dive in your article titled Keeping Up Standards for a Better World or 
what anthropology can contribute to the study of international organizations, you write that international lawyers continue to dominate the study of IOs. And yet, in the past decade, this disciplinary hierarchy has become increasingly unsatisfying. Can you tell our audience a bit about this evolution and how this latent unsatisfaction has led to calls to other corners of academia to join in the study of international organizations? That's a very good question. Um, I guess I might say that even though here I talk of the last decade, in certain ways I see these calls to be of, lo- of a lot longer sort of pedigree. I started to get engaged with a very diamond, uh, dynamic and a vibrant group of international lawyers in Helsinki already at the start of the new millennium. So that's way over 20 years ago. And there, this very open-minded and brilliant group of international lawyers was definitely open and very welcoming toward insights of other disciplines However, I would, and they, of course, were not alone. There were many others, and this community is is very vast today. However, I would dare to say that uh, law as a discipline is one of those that in certain ways has a tendency to create kind of a, not a world, but maybe a realm of its own, and which in certain ways tends to dominate the study of different topics that it sees as sort of fitting under its character. And of course, the law is societally enormously influential, far more so than anthropology. And I also quickly, I think I mentioned in that version, but I have a longer version of this paper that hopefully will come out in due course in another uh, edited book. And in that I describe, as I've done in many of my other writings, how by definition, when you study international lawyers or lawyers, you are studying up which is what anthropologist Laura Nader talked of, whereas uh, in many instances, the studying up refers to studying a group of interlocutors who have far greater societal influence and power than the anthropologist would have. And in many other contexts, this is not the case because many anthropologists choose to work with groups for whom they also wish to give an amplified voice through their research. So when one studies international lawyers, one is definitely studying up. So I feel that now... Over the last decade, what has happened is that these kinds of calls for something else, for broader views, and also a simultaneous, continually growing interaction of anthropologists in the study of of international organizations, in my assessment, has definitely increased. And if we think of anthropology, this momentum has coincided with the proliferation of anthropological work in very sort of related areas, the anthropology of bureaucracy, the anthropology study of expertise. There's lots of very exciting work on the anthropology of document. So all this kind of goes hand in hand. So I feel like in many ways, these two moments, a realization of, of international lawyers that perhaps it's not possible to find all the answers that they also seek to get access to this tripod, if you will, from solely a legal perspective. And maybe to pair that uh, sentiment with what many have described as a lo- growing loss of sort of belief in the, the possibility of the law to function as a tool for world improvement, which has been very important in the the post-World War II decades. So that uh, sort of legal, lawyerly feeling combined with this continually proliferating work by anthropologists and, of course, by other disciplines as well. There's lots of exciting work by, by historians and also, of course, sociologists and international relations scholars. So 
Here we are, anthropologists coming into area of study, the study of international organizations, and using their tools and their methods and their curiosity that is uh, typical of your discipline. So let's try to get the audience now, give them a feeling of what the findings are. So as if we were putting on the anthropologist gear and goggles, what can we see through that lens when we look at international organizations. In a part of your article, I remember reading that you say that in some ways it may be even be easier for anthropologists to study and theorize international organizations than it is for international lawyers. So if I put on the doubles of the anthropologist, what do I see when I look at international organizations or the UN in particular? That's an excellent question, and I'll try to give a a concise enough answer because, of course, these are the moments when the anthropologists would tend to just sort of go on and on and on. So I think that um, how I think about it personally is that I'm not sure if the anthropologists' goggles are something that one just sort of spontaneously or instantly puts on and off. I think it might be something that it's a more sort of a gradual viewpoint that one, one gets. And what I would say is that the first way in which I could maybe explain this is that when an anthropologist anthropologist sits in the conference room of the Palais Wilson, which is where I've done my ethnographic observations. And uh, just to very quick context, this is the main conference room of the Palais Wilson, which used to be the former headquarters of the League of Nations before the Palais des Nations was uh, finished in the 1930s. And today it functions as the headquarters of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. So this is also the building where UN treaty bodies convene. Just to clarify this technical detail, I, I maybe mentioned it, but the Human Rights Committee monitors how states comply with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it's often called the most law-like and authoritative of all the treaty bodies, especially by those who are associated with it, but I, I, I think in general as well. So when one sits there in the conference room of the Ballet Wilson, one of course first sees the formal description of what takes place. So you see and hear state delegates sitting in one place, and then you see UN delegates, you members of the UN civil service sitting in one place, and then you see the members of treaty bodies, and then the audience, and the UN conference services, and then the interpreters, and what's and what and whatnot. That's the thing that you see. Then there's a really curious sensation when one sits there and realizes that actually the only way to access all of these proceedings is by keeping one's headphones on. And if one removes them, this is the anthropological curiosity. So what would happen if I do this? If one removes one's headphones, it's an extremely bizarre sensation when one sits basically in an empty room. So everyone is there and one cannot hear the person who's speaking because there are no microphones that are wired in the way that it would be audible. One cannot see the name of the face of the person, nor know the name of them. And if one doesn't understand the language, then one actually cannot even hear the person's voice or their gender, because one will be listening to the words of a, of a simultaneous translate. So these are all of the moments where an anthropologist starts to think of how the real reality, which is always explicitly the target of all of these proceedings starts to slip further and further away through all of these so subtle processes of translation via which real reality is translated into you and reality. And then one starts to realize that actually, even though the very purpose of these proceedings is to be open, open to the world and capture the world's attention, in fact, one needs quite a bit of knowledge and competence in order to be able to access that you and reality. So not only is there the question of the jargon that's utilized, which is something 
something very different from everyday language that is being utilized. One needs to know the structure, the context. One needs to understand the logic. Okay, so why are these kinds of documents that are called state reports processed here? And one very concretely needs to know how to access these proceedings. So with that, an anthropologist may start to connect these individual observations into the bigger picture of the world. And I have spoken a lot about the elitism of international human rights monitoring, and these are some of the outcomes of it. So one wants to represent what I've described as the global underdog, but the global underdog, which in in many instances is embodied by the female girl child from a developing state, that global underdog, that girl is never physically present in any of these proceedings. And she actually could not even be, because even if she was there, she very likely would not have that kind of competence that would enable her to participate. So then one asks, what does all this mean? And so it continues and it continues. So these are some of the things that may happen when one enters are perfectly ordinary looking. Some of my interlocutors even have described it as occasionally boring, which may sound dramatic, but I think it's fair because these proceedings are very, very long. So so to enter a very familiar appearing ceremony of international diplomacy, and then one starts to see it from different angles and one sees it through different layers, which all start to reveal something very different. So as, it's as if from the anthropology standpoint, this kind of uh, part of diplomacy that we refer to as ritual or ritualistic because diplomacy has these embedded rituals um, since forever is as if correct me if I'm wrong as an anthropologist you grasp onto that rapidly so you were in those meetings and you grasp the ritualistic part as an anthropologist. But as you said, and, and I and I confirm that, this is one of the most important treaty bodies of the UN. So there is really a difference that these meetings are making in the real reality versus the UN reality. So as an anthropologist, what can be said about the connection between two realities? Because clearly they coexist. How was the feeling and what was the findings in your in your study about how these two realities work together and affect one another? Yes, this is really interesting and extremely important. And as many scholars always say, I'm also tempted to say this is something that I'd want to study more and I think it should be studied more. So what are the patterns of causality that lead from the UN reality back to the real reality. And some of the observations, what I've done is that I am actually preparing a book manuscript where I hope to bring all of the the writings that I've done together. I have loosely structured that around full cycle of the state report of Finland. And Finland, well, for the reason I am Finnish, which is not a very good uh, scholarly argument, but also because Finland is commonly viewed as something of a model student within the international human rights framework. And Finland has been highlighted by many as embodied very much what our treaty body proceedings should be like, because all the preparations are done diligently. So I view that by studying a state like Finland, we can get an an extremely good understanding of what treaty body proceedings and state reporting uh, cycles should be like when they are done in a way that has been envisioned. So one of the questions then becomes, how do these proceedings gain an impact? And what I have come to understand is that here again, we need to move away from that sort of realm of legal fiction. And then 
look at the community of practice and also individuals. Because it can be that when the UN Human Rights Committee says something deprements Finland, for example, on the treat of the Roma people, which is something that comes up quite often. Spontaneously, one may think, because of course in this IO and human rights literature, state represents the, the bad guy. State is that's the sovereign problem. But of course, when we look at the people who actually work in the foreign affairs offices who handle these state reportings, they will likely be the most pro-human rights civil servants in existence because they work in the human rights divisions of their governments. Not of course always, but that has been my experience that these people are in a way part of the same community of practice of human rights experts and activists. So what can happen is that from the viewpoint of legal fiction, one might think that also the individual civil servant would be upset a UN expert body like the Human Rights Committee reprimands Finland. However, what may happen in reality is that the individual themselves, that that person may be very well aware and likely is very well aware that there are problems with how Finland, for example, is handling the Roma people. And they likely would like to see something happen about it. So what they can do is to take that uh, reprimanding by a UN body and take it back home, which means that they can give additional weight and momentum to internal arguments about the need of greater resources. So this is one example of the kind of patterns and chains of causality that we can identify. And I said, I would love to see many more studies being done on this because out of all the elements of human rights actors, um, for evident reasons, uh, state civil servants have been the most understudied so far. So I would love to see a comparative study and maybe maybe one day that will materialize. This is so interesting. It resonates so much with me because I know this phenomenon. I can really, I could mention a dozen cases in which I have lived through official meetings in my previous jobs and I saw it exactly that at work. I saw exactly that causality ploy. So thank you for bringing this in, into our discussion. I, I have another question for our deep dive here on your findings. One other thing that really stuck with me and stayed with me after I read your article was this metaphor of eyes to describe the complexity of organizational inner contour. So you use use ICE. You say, you know, this is like ICE in organizations. And that illustrates a little bit also the fuzzy logic of certain international organizations. And I would love for the sake of our audience understanding, can you please explain more about ICE and fuzzy logic? With pleasure. I need to add that it's a great pleasure for me to hear that uh, my research resonates with, with your previous experiences because that's sometimes people, they, they wonder whether, because evidently when you're analytical, one can always say that there's a critical angle as well. And I think that there needs to be. I think this is what it means to be a scholar of human rights. You need to be uh, analytical and that means critical of everything that happens because otherwise we're not doing our job and we may actually let a lot of things that should be placed under scrutiny to go unnoticed. So I'm very pleased whenever I hear that people say that it resonates. So that makes me feel I've also done my job well. But the question about ice and fuzzy logic. So really it's one of those things that started to happen when I was there with my anthropological goggles, which maybe for me I can't help. And it's it's not necessarily something, not every anthropologist thinks in metaphors, but I find that for me, somehow I need to take that distance. And when we talk about doing ethnography in a context that by all external uh, criteria is very familiar and even mundane, we need to work a little bit harder on how we can get that analytical distance when we don't have that automatic distance of something appearing different and exotic. 
specific to us. So I think that's one of the reasons why, why I've been drawn to metaphors. And with ice, it's something that tackles with the same, the triad that I've described here, where on the one level, there undoubtedly, of course, are things that exist because of legal mandates. They exist because of organizational praxis. And at the same time, these things can acquire and do acquire a life in reality and they can change. And for me, when we think of human rights, there's always this sense of fragility. So we always are sort of troubled by this notion that, okay, they have a certain recognition and a certain respect today, but what will happen in the future? And of course, we see how governments may come back all the time and there are different kinds of, of challenges. So for me, I think one of the reasons I was, you know, of course, I am Finnish, so we, we work around with ice quite a bit. So I'm very familiar with the different forms of ice also. So it somehow captured that intrinsic fragility. It's something that appears and is also very solid, which which for me manifests how over the post-World War II decades, we have seen a proliferation of different human rights uh, expert bodies, and we have seen a proliferation of a monitoring framework. So in that way, it is solid. It's clear. And at the same time, there's this element of fragility. So if, for example, as happened with Trump, the US comes in and says, okay, we're slashing uh, one fourth of our budget, a part of that solid appearing construction is not only under peril, but it will be destroyed because cuts need to be made. Also something about political climate. So of course, ice will change into water and then later into steam. Political climates, for me, the metaphors of ice somehow nicely captures how something can turn that appears solid one moment can appear to be liquid the next moment. And then it can freeze again and you're never able to deduce from the new form that it has taken how it was before and ice of course is also porous so even though it is solid it is defined by subtle pores and that is what i mean by fuzzy logic those who are on the inside they may know or they know exactly how to maneuver around seeming obstacles through the porous nature of ice and what that could mean for example is that at the human rights committee a few years back and and still today likely uh, there was an ngo that was doing some of the podcasts because the the un did not have any funds so something like that if it was introduced to states in New York at the General Assembly, and there was a question asked, and I'm, of course, this is a slightly minor issue that the General Assembly would not be touching upon something like this, but let's say that there was an, an issue of practicality. If it was brought out into the open daylight, and states, for example, were asked to vote on it, it might be very difficult to, to realize it. However, when things like this are carried on subtly, then things can be realized. And of course, what we need to recognize here is that often we tend to think of such fuzzy things as embodying negative things. In my assessment, what I've understood is it's very much also a tool that those insiders who are very committed to the advancement of human rights, they take advantage of in order to increase the efficiency of certain mechanisms or the general advancement of human rights. So that's that kind of how I've arrived at the metaphor of ice and fuzzy logic. And actually this, um, thank you for that, taking me quite organically to the next and last stop of our of our little journey here, which is I wanted to have um, an exchange and hear your opinion on practice and evolution within international organization and in the world. There is an entire world of international organization. And well, I think it could be said fairly confidently that the international relation landscape today is showing increasing pressure 
on multilateralism, first of all, but also of intense criticism of uh, some, if not all, international organizations around. And uh, some observers are starting to, to think that the mandates of this organization are so vast and they've grown so much over the decades that they can hardly be achieved now. And so there is this dimension of impact and effectiveness that uh, is at the core of this sort of very present debate. But that debate has been here forever. Huh? It was there also for the League of Nations, etc. But I, I find that today that debate rests on different bases. And one of them is certainly the emerging of global issues, climate change, for example, that were not known, that were not there at the time of the League of Nations. And so I, I'm curious about what can be said on the question of effectiveness of international organizations from the vantage point of anthropology. You already touched upon how the two realities, the one reality and the real reality, communicate and affect one another. But um, when I looked at your work on the Human Rights Committee, I wonder if there is anything that you can disclose to us about effectiveness of international organization, organizations in, in that particular area that you studied. Thanks. Very, very big themes here. And to to start with, indeed, you're absolutely right how the, the question of mandates and effectiveness and the very future of IOs is something that is intensely debated right now. And I think that debate will increase. And in a way, that's very natural, because if we think about it, the UN, I mean, now it's in its 70s and very much by any standards in retirement age. And we're seeing something interesting where if we think of the human rights phenomenon, uh, commentators of course, differ on what would be the origins of it, but many different voices. And also there, there's reason to argue this, that the 1970s was very, very important for the contemporary human rights phenomenon. And if we only think of the UN framework, we had the two covenants that finally, the ICCPR and the ICSCR, that finally entered into force in 1976. So that alone sort of solidifies the importance of the 1970s. So what's happened is that now we still have the occasional pioneer who was there at the the very start, uh, working actively in the 19, late 1960s and the early 1970s to set this framework up. And to mention just one name, there was Sir Nigel Rodley, the chairman of the Human Rights Committee and a very well-known and a respected figure in the human rights field who very sadly died a few years ago. So, so someone like him, Professor Andrew Clapham, we did a session at the Grad Institute together when the ICCPR and the ICESCR celebrated their 40th anniversary of entry into force. So Andrew Clapham introduced uh, Nigel Rodley as being someone who was there single-handedly responsible for the creation of the legal division of Amnesty International. So whether, whether that's true or not, I don't quite know. I'm sure there were many other people, but I'm sure that uh, he also had a, a very important role to play. But that basically means that we have seen the concrete retirement and in some instances sad departures of these individuals who were there setting things going. And now we have entirely different generations who have not, of course, experienced the, the horrors of World War II firsthand, but who have also not been there as pioneers to build the basic structures of this framework. So, so what happens when the kind of that kind of a zeal of the pioneers retires. So how does that impact the, the future of this organization? What's really interesting is to, to think of the theme of expansion, which has been something also central in my own research. And in the, the years following World War II, in many ways, we could see that the 
multilateral world order and uh, the, the institutions around it, they were expanding all the time. We were building something new. We were developing new bodies. And in the human rights framework, it was continually expanding. We had new human rights covenants. We had new institutions. We had new expert bodies. And suddenly that has started to shift a little. And in 2013, that was the first time when the Human Rights Committee no longer convened in New York. They only convened in Geneva. And that for me was interesting because it was kind of a, a step backward, not only expanding all the time, but sort of reducing the scale a little bit. Amnesty International over the past few years has started a very serious uh, debate on how it should revise its own mandate. Up until this point, when Amnesty International, we remember that it started with a single issue of torture, it has diversified its mandate and expanded it continuously. Over the past few years, that also Amnesty International has become concerned about that. So how can it remain significant if it, if it attempts to address everything that can't function? So how can it take a step back? So we're seeing these subtle moments of scaling back, taking step backs back and not moving forward with this endless expansion. So in that way, I would argue that there has been a subtle shift already. I've witnessed a very interesting shift in many of my students. When if I think 10 15 years ago, one could definitely see the glamour and allure by, of international organizations that many of them had. Many of them today, not there's something different about the move. Very few of them mention you, the UN as a career goal explicitly. I think it's very much more about small scale interventions, about grassroots and the importance thereof. So what does all of this mean for the future of IOs? I think we will see rather significant changes. But of course, change is difficult because once things acquire a life of their own, as many argue that IOs have done, it's very difficult to change that. And there are funding patterns, even though a powerful state may come and slash its funding and that changes things. Still, there are existing sort of patterns that keep the momentum going around IOs. So in certain ways, it may be also frustrating that this very important discussion of effectiveness doesn't necessarily impact the existing funding patterns or the practices and procedures that these IOs have. So what will happen, anthropologists are a bit poor on this because we, of course, are very interested in studying what people have done and what they are doing. I would say that this is, again, something that I really hope to study myself and I look forward to the studies of many others um, to, to see what, what kind of changes we will see in the next, let's say, 20-year period. It is true that anthropology is a discipline that looks at our past, but I would like to challenge you a little bit more for my last point. My last point in this conversation is the future. We in the UN are very keen on looking at the future with uh, a sort of constructing a very positive attitude. Of course, we're very aware that the system was created back in 45, is in its 70s, but we're not aware that we can retire the organization before international, the international landscape has something concrete and, and firm to rest the multilateralism practice on. And so I wouldn't say that we're obsessed with the future of multilateralism, but it's certainly something that is coming back uh, over and over in the discussion, maybe not the official discussion, but for example, in the in the discourse that links the Secretary General to various member states and to the General Assembly in its totality, this discourse of the future multilateralism, our common agenda, these are all terms that we have become uh, pretty used to in the, in the past few years. And in a way, a part of that 
is linked to the existence of Agenda 2030. Agenda 2030 is basically looking at the future and shaping the future that we want. But in part, it's also linked to a consciousness, a sort of awareness that the conditions in which the United Nations and the system were created have changed and we're we're facing things that were not there before and perhaps we're facing things for which we're not entirely equipped and here i wanted to ask the anthropologist what do you see because we have been through as a civilization various stages of change and progress into phases that are in the future so this is typical of us as humans and it's typical also of our planet in a way so when we start looking at IOs as a phenomenology of human behaviors, basically, what do you see in the future of these structures, if not mandates, through your lens as an anthropologist? Thank you for the challenge. I think it's always good to be challenged, so I appreciate that very much. I think it is necessary for us to think of the future also as anthropologists who insist on grounding their analyses and what people actually do. And I think the future changes that I see is that, of course, as I already mentioned, what makes the UN so particular is that a notion of sovereign equality of all states. So there we already also have something that already has changed. The world, of course, is not, it never really was. That was part of the legal fiction. Uh, But even increasingly today, we don't really operate in a world of states anymore. So one of the things that I think the Agenda 2030 has already realized is that for the first time in the U.S. history, so I argue based on the work that I've done, that mandate issued a call for non-state actors and private partners as well. So the notion of public-private partnership, thinking that the UN is the construction of the legal entities known as state, there's something very important to me about that. So that's partially, I think, a twofold realization. I think that it is partially about a positive change, a positive realization that there are these other very powerful parties and surprise, surprise, even though we tend to think so often in the field of human rights that where states are kind of the bad guys, while corporations, they the bad guys. There are many people, of course, in the corporate sector who are very much about saving the world as well. If we think of all of the startup scene, all that talk, it's all about ways to improve the world and save the world. So if we forgo a sense of cynicism and think it's all, you know, PR talk, I think we have to take it seriously that there are people there who are very, very committed to finding solutions to these compelling problems such as climate warming, to which IOs like the UN may be fundamentally ill-equipped to deal with. So so that's a positive side of it. A, A more sort of a somber reason is that, of course, I think... Maybe that everyone realizes it, whether whether we talk about it or not is another thing. The 2030 agenda and the uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, we know that states don't have the kind of money that are, is required for their realization. So in that way, public-private partnerships may be the only solution that we have. So in that way, by necessity, we need to reconfigure the main building blocks of our multilateral space of collaboration. From there, what's interesting is that, of course, the interests of corporations and if we think in terms of extractivist practices on indigenous lands or wind energy, there the interests of indigenous people and corporations often cla- uh, clash very violent. At the same time, I would like to think that this new change in terrain might open doors and pathways for different kinds of actors that are not states and they're not corporations either. IOs, of course, are very, very important there. So they do hold, which I think is part of how the UN envisages its 
itself something of a mediator role, which offers this space that is non-political, it's non-commercial, it's by non-partisan interests where all of these different parties can come together. And I think the future and effectiveness and impact, I talk about the importance of concrete standard on bringing a set notion of civilization and that being one of the fundamental tasks of IOs. I think uh, a very important task for IOs such as the UN or maybe in particular the UN could be to really open itself up as a facilitator for different kinds of collaborations and uh, dialogues. So different kinds of dialogues that will states that are the formal building blocks of the UN world, but also such actors as corporations, indigenous peoples and other IOs. I feel that there is a lot we can learn together with our audience from anthropology. So I hope this is not not the last time we talked to an anthropologist on our podcast. This is immensely interesting to me, at least. This is a good place, perhaps, to start wrapping up our episode here. And I wanted to ask you, you know, maybe your final thoughts you really wish our audience to remember of your experience in exploring the world of international organizations. Yes, well, that's a delicious invitation. What would I suggest? Um, I think even though I said that it's difficult to say whether the anthropological goggles are something that you simply put on or put off, I think I would invite still people to experiment with that. So how I see, I talked about how anthropology for me may open the pathway to metaphors, so getting a sense of distance and being able to view something from another angle by using metaphors. Fundamentally, anthropology to me is really a tool that allows one to question the self-evident and the seemingly mundane. And I think this is something that's, of course, at the heart of critical thinking as well. But somehow now we talk a lot in anthropology and in other disciplines as well of more holistic ways of knowing. So there's also the notion of sensory experience. So I think I would like to extend that invitation to that direction. And that, of course, would link to all kinds of epistemologies of what does knowing mean. And then we enter into the thing of different kinds of epistemologies and indigenous um, epistemologies and so, so forth. But I would like to invite people to to challenge themselves ever so often on asking themselves, how do they know what they think that they know? How do they take what they think is self-evident? How do they take it for granted? What if they challenge the basic assumptions that they have? What other kinds of viewpoints could they have? And I think this is something, if we take it back to the future of IOs, when we see that things are changing and they're not really functioning or having the kind of impact that we thought that they would have, that's actually something we need to do. And here I want to suggest that an anthropological viewpoint might feel quite empowering in certain ways. It might offer new ways of thinking, new ways of finding answers and solutions even that one did not receive before. I think this is so powerful and thank you for offering that to our audience. And for those who's going to accept the invitation, where can they find more about your work and any advice you may have on web resources and other knowledge sources? Oh, well, of my work, a very simple start. Um, I do tend to document everything on, that I do on my website, which is simply by my own name. As I mentioned, now is the year to finally wrap up the book project that I'm, I've been working on for quite a while on my work on the UN Human Rights Committee. So that would be one place. To learn more of anthropology, there are lots of wonderful outlets. And maybe I can mention something where I've also been involved in, which is called Allegra Laboratory. So Allegra Lab. So that's something where lots of new anthropological writing 
comes um, up. And it's written, yes, in a scholarly way, but still it's something, a different genre from standard academic writings. And there are lots of other great online resources as well. So anthropology may feel that it's a bit detached, but it's surprisingly accessible. So I warmly encourage people to approach those resources with an open mind. Thank you. Well, Professor Mia Alme Tomisari, thank you so much for taking time for uh, to be with us uh, on the next page. And we hope to uh, welcome you on the next episode in the coming years. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much.